My name is Roger Rushing. I'm one of the pastors here at New City. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Thank you for choosing to spend the first weekend of your new year with us. So, Happy New Year. Uh, I hope that you guys had great celebration on New Year's Eve. I don't know about you, but I feel so much wiser uh, this year than I did last year. So I don't know what changed between December 31st and January 1st, but I feel like looking back on 2019 with my eyes, these 2020 eyes, I feel like I can just see so much more clearly. There you go. You got it. Yeah, I know. I should stop telling that joke. I've been telling it all year, and it still hasn't landed. Oh, see, that's a little bit better. This is a rough group for bad dad jokes. I won't uh, tell you my third one. It was about the Roaring Twenties. It had a lion. It was really good. But, oh, see, a couple of you knew that was still a joke. That's okay. Uh, anyway, Happy New Year. I'm glad you're here. I don't know if you have made New Year's resolutions, and if you have all these changes you want to make, that's typical of this time of year. We see this word new, and we think of all this unwritten possibility and all this potentiality. And so we look and we say, I want to do something new. I want to do something different. So at the end of 2020, I'm different than I was at the beginning. Usually those new things we want to do are improvements. We want to, to be a better version of ourselves. And so we have all this stuff we want to change. I don't know what you want to change, but I know I have things that I want to change. I've had, I've called it a resolution before, but I've been so bad at it, I think now it's just a hope. But I've had a resolution in the past couple of years to lose some weight. Um, it hasn't happened. In fact, I've made a bigger goal because I just keep getting bigger. Um, but change is hard. And, and I know that change is hard for me. And part of the reason is because you know, we're habited in certain ways. We've practiced things. So whoever we habited ourselves in 2019, whatever practices we had in 2019, we carry those over into 2020. So even though we have all these like goals and ambitions and we've made this like mental change, uh, sometimes our habits don't get the memo that something drastic has changed from December 31st to January 1st. So for instance, with me, I'm habited in such a way that even ringing in the new year, I spent it eating homemade cinnamon rolls and bacon wrapped little smokies. So you know, I'm, I'm still the same person that I was in 2019 in 2020. Change is just hard. Uh, but what's really, really hard, besides change of like trying to, to lose some weight or save more money or do less of this or more of that, radical change is even harder. And I don't think that something like me losing even 20, 30 pounds would be radical change. It seems pretty tough right now, so it seems like a big change, but it's not like radical change. What I mean by radical change is what we see Jesus calling the disciples to. Because Jesus calls the disciples to change out of like a whole culture that they have and into this counterculture. So we think about all the, the decisions we make and habits we have in place that are kind of conscious where we make those choices. But then you think about all that stuff that's underpinning the stuff that we don't even see that's like subconscious that it forms and shapes us kind of without us even knowing it. That's coming out of that whole system and changing so radically. And that's the kind of change that Jesus calls his disciples to. And Jesus calls his disciples, and by extension, his church, to some really hard things. He's been saying it throughout his ministry, but surrounding both of the passages that we've heard today, that's the context of the passages. This really hard word that Jesus is bringing to his disciples. So you look at the Luke passage, for instance, and leading up to it, there's several chapters that all run together, so it's a lot to look at at once. But there's this fluid conversation that's taking place. Sometimes it's with Jesus and the Pharisees, sometimes it's Jesus and the disciples, but both parties are there for all of it. It's kind of like, I think of it like Jesus is on center stage and the spotlight's on him, and every now and then the Pharisees kind of wander into that light, and they, they converse with Jesus and have this interaction, and then they fade to the side, and the disciples wander in, and they have their interaction, but neither party leaves. 
Neither party leaves. Both are focused on Jesus and hearing the words that he has. And both are hearing really hard words. And the hard words, whether they're said to the Pharisees or the disciples, they're hard for both parties. So if you look at it, Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees, and he's been telling them, look, guys, you've set yourselves up to be kind of keepers of orthodoxy. So you're judgmental, and you get to decide what's right and what's wrong, and more importantly, who's in and who's out. And not surprisingly, the Pharisees do as we do, and they look at the people who think like they are, uh, look like they do, think like they do, and those are the ones that are in. And everybody else is out. And Jesus has been telling him that they've been misusing the law, that they've taken what should have been this tool to draw people to God, and instead they've kind of weaponized it. And they've used it to press down and oppress and crush these people to kind of like lift themselves up and to see that they're, they're more important. Not only that, but they've used this to push people out to the fringes or beyond. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't do that. So it's this tough word for the Pharisees to hear. In fact, it's so tough that they start saying things like, we should probably kill this guy. And they try to figure out how to go about doing that because they see him as a threat, because he is a threat. But the problem is, I don't think the Pharisees are like on, you know, the other side of the stage. I don't know, what is a stage, right? I'm not a theater guy, but they're on the other side of the stage and they hear these words. I don't think they're over there going like, yeah, give it to them. I think they're over there going, man, if those guys can't, you know, I mean, these are supposed to be the religious leaders. If it's that tough of a word for them, I think that it still strikes the disciples as weighty. But if it doesn't, it starts to, because the disciples wander in, they begin to talk to Jesus, and Jesus starts directly addressing them and telling them some really tough stuff. So at the beginning of chapter 17, he starts talking to them about these little ones. And he's not talking about uh, kids. He's talking about ones who are new to the faith, new to this journey, the ones who are just starting to come along, most of whom had been pushed out by those Pharisees, most of whom had said, look, you're, you don't measure up, and so this God thing's not for you. And their whole lives, they've been pushed out to the outsides. They're the outcast. And Jesus is saying some of them have started to come around and come to this journey, and they've never had this safe place, and they're starting to find that safe place here. And so he tells the disciples, look, temptation's going to come, but woe to you if temptation comes through you, and you cause one of these ones to stumble. They're trying, trying to find that safe place. Woe to you if you tell them, hey, this isn't safe. Woe to you if you start saying, hey, you don't measure up. And he tells them this really hard word where he says, it would be better for you if you do that. It'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. That's a pretty tough word, right? As a disciples, you got to be hearing that going, man, that's intense. And then Jesus goes on to talk to them and tell them about this, this interaction between them and the other parts of the community. And he says, look, if your brother or sister is sinning, you should rebuke them. But you have to understand, it's not the judgmental rebuke of the Pharisees that pushes out. Instead, it's a rebuke in love that is always calling towards reconciliation. We always have to be moving towards reconciliation and restoration. And Jesus says, you got to rebuke, but you also got to forgive. And forgiveness is a hard word. I mean, it's tough, especially when, when we are in the right. And we have the right to be mad and the right to be hurt because we've been hurt by somebody. They've done wrong to us. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I find forgiveness to be a tough word. I mean, I know God's all about forgiveness, and we're supposed to be too, but it's still a hard word. But it gets even harder because Jesus goes on to tell them, look, if your brother or your sister sins against you seven times in a day, and he doesn't mean like keeping tally, they get up to seven. He means seven as it represents completion, totality, wholeness. So he's essentially saying, if your brother or your sister sins against you all day long, but they keep turning back and they keep repenting, you must forgive. 
That's a really hard word. That's such a hard word that as soon as it comes out of my mouth, I want to qualify it. Because that word has been used and misused in ways to empower victim or empower victimizers and to keep the victims in their place. So you think about maybe an abusive relationship. A misreading of this would be that, you know, this person who's doing all this abuse and stuff, you know, they just say, oh, I'm sorry. And then the, the victim of that has to say, oh, well, I have to forgive, which means I have to continue to live into these patterns. That's not what's being said here. That's not what forgiveness means. That's certainly not what Jesus demonstrates to us time and time again in other places. But it's such a hard word. We need to put all of these kind of qualifiers and make sure that we hear it and understand it. But I tell you what, even when we do that and we rightly understand it, we distill it down to what Jesus really means. It's still a really hard word. Because Jesus says that we have to forgive without limit. I mean, we're okay with this idea that God forgives without limit, especially when it's us. I am great with the idea that God forgives me without limit because God knows I have tried to find the limit. And thankfully, I haven't found it yet because there's not one. And I love that God forgives me without limit. I'll be honest with you. I'm not so happy that he forgives everybody without limit. Like there's some on the list where I'm like, God, let's be reasonable. I mean, come on, draw the line somewhere. I don't know, maybe that's just me, but forgiveness is hard. But God says, hey, I forgive without limit, and not only that, but he calls us to forgive without limit. That's a hard word. And Jesus has been saying all kinds of other hard words. He's been saying that if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to become the servant to all. He's been telling them, you know, that he's got to go and suffer and, and die, but in the same breath saying, and you've got to pick up your own cross and follow after me. These are tough words. Our passage in John is also surrounded by tough words. Our passage in John comes out of the Last Supper. So it's this time, the last gathering that Jesus has his disciples before everything's about to go down. In a few hours, they're going to be in the garden. There's going to be all this pain. There's going to be an arrest. There's going to be torture. There's going to be a death. And all of that's about to go down, and this is the last time that Jesus has his disciples together. And so he's trying to give them words of encouragement, but he's also trying to give them his final instruction. Remember, he's their rabbi, their teacher, the one who's trying to show them the way. And if you look in the chapter before we read this one, in chapter 13, you see their teacher doing a crazy thing. He takes off his robe of the rabbi. He lays aside all of his authority as teacher and master, and instead he dresses himself in the clothes of a slave. And he lowers himself to the lowliest duty he could perform, to wash the feet of his disciples. But when he's done with that, he puts back on that authority, he puts back on the teacher robe of the rabbi and sits at the head of the table as the master. He doesn't just say to his disciples, guys, I did that for you because I love you so much and I want you to know it. That's part of what he does. But he also says with that love comes this command. He says, look, I am the master, you're the servant, and the servant is never greater than the master. So I have done this as your master so that you, the servant, will see my example and then go and do likewise. See, it is because he loves so much, but then he calls us to love as he loves. In fact, if there's any confusion about it, he spells it out. He says to them right after that, today I give you a new command to love one another as I love you. That's what Jesus says. And if you think about what's going to happen in a few hours because of that love, the arrest, the torture, the death, that's a really hard word. And so in that context too, we've got this really hard word, but Jesus doesn't just instruct, he, he encourages. 
But we find that even in Jesus' encouragement, it's a little overwhelming. Because if you look at uh, verse 12 of chapter 14, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've done and greater works than these. I mean, on the one hand, that's really encouraging. Yeah, it's a rally cry. On the other hand, it's like, whoa, that's a high standard. I mean, think about some of the works that Jesus has done. Think about his first miracle of turning water into wine. What's better than that? What's greater than that? For some of you, it might be turning water into bourbon. I don't know. But either way, it's a high standard. Or think about Jesus feeds 5,000 with some kid's lunch. What am I supposed to do? Feed 10,000 with some vending machine crackers? I mean, that's a high standard. It's a tough word. Or he brings Lazarus back from the dead. Lazarus, who was like dead, dead, not just like Princess Bride dead, but really dead. He was in the tomb. He was, he was like stinky dead. And Jesus calls into that place of death and says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead walk out of the tomb. I don't even know what's greater than that. So even in Jesus' words of encouragement, it's kind of overwhelming. And so we see the disciples' response to these hard words. And in Luke, we see the, the disciples responding this way. They say, Lord, increase our faith. And I want to slow down just a little bit here because I want us to see that Luke does something here. He doesn't call them the disciples here. He calls them the apostles. And it's not because Luke doesn't use the word disciples. He does. There's a bunch of places he uses disciples, even within this kind of section we've been looking at. But here he says the apostles. And I think the reason that he does that is we have to remember Luke is writing after the fact, right? He's recounting everything. So he's, he's already lived through this. It's already happened. So we've had the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection. Beyond that, the new church has sprung up. And you've got this new church who's trying to figure out what does it mean to carry on in the way of Christ and to do the mission that he has given to them. And we have to remember, too, that that early church, the leaders of that church were these guys, the apostles. And so in using apostles, I really feel like Luke is tying in in such a way so that it's the entire church, this whole new church that's trying to figure things out, that's living into these hard words. And in chorus, they cry out, Lord, increase our faith. And not just the whole church, but even the leadership. So we probably shouldn't hold people to different standards, but if we were going to, this is like the creme de la creme. As far as faith goes, you would think the leaders of that church, the apostles, they're the ones. And Luke here has the apostles calling out in one voice, Lord, increase our faith. So what do they mean? What do they mean in saying increase our faith? In preparing for this message, I find that scholars kind of are divided into two camps. Because it's hard for us to figure out exactly what they're saying and in what way they mean this increase our faith. And part of the reason is because there's ambiguity here. Luke, in, in just having this chorus of apostles sing in one voice, increase our faith, he creates a lot of ambiguity. And personally, I think he creates that ambiguity so it's not an either-or situation, but a both-and. We'll talk about that here in just a second. But if you contrast the Luke passage to what's going on in John, if you read the chapters around what we read and the verses around what we read, you'll find that it's really clear there who's talking to who and what's going on. So you have various disciples who address Jesus directly, and then Jesus uh, addresses them and then the group. And so we find we have them named. So Thomas asks questions, Philip asks questions, uh, Judas, not the one who betrays, but the other one, asks questions. And in the Greek, we're given insight even into who Jesus is talking to. 
Because we can see when he's using the singular and replying directly to that disciple, and then when he changes and is talking to all of his disciples. So it's really clear in John, and that can give us a little understanding of kind of maybe what's in their head and what's taking place. But Luke has this ambiguity, and again, I think it's so that it's both and. And so the two possibilities that I think are both happening is one is this idea of kind of the way that Peter might say this. So Peter, he was a man of extremes. I don't know if you know Peter's story or not, but he was a man of extremes. So if you think about when Jesus appears to the disciples after he's been raised from the dead, and all the disciples are out on this boat fishing, and they see this guy on the shore, and they're not quite sure what's going on, and eventually they realize it's Jesus. Peter's the guy who doesn't wait for the boat to come ashore. He just jumps in and swims, right? He's that kind of guy, leap before thinking kind of a guy. And he goes from zero to 60 like that. So even that, the washing of the disciples' feet, when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter's like, oh, like this might be okay for everybody else, but I know what's going on here. I'm not worthy of this. I should wash your feet, Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, look, Peter, if I don't do this, then you don't have any part of me. So boom, he switches. All right, then God, not just my feet, but my whole body. Like wash all of me. Like whatever you're doing for them, I want double, right? And so I feel like Peter's way of, of saying this increase our faith is like, bring it on, right? This is who Peter is. He wants that double portion. He wants whatever's, whatever's going to make it bigger and better. And he looks at, at Jesus's plan and mission and says, I got this. Bring it on, right? And so he wants to be, he wants to be the star. He wants to be the big guy that God's going to rely on, right? Bring it on. That's who Peter wants to be. So he wants to supersize it. He's like, hey, let's add to this. God, you got a good plan. I got all these other great ideas. Like, let's make this happen too. I got this. But then I think there's another voice in that crowd too. And I think that voice would be best represented by Thomas. So Thomas, he gets a bad rap. You might not even remember real quick like who Thomas is. But then if I say doubting Thomas, you've probably heard of him because it's like I gave you his first name, doubting. Like, he gets a bad rap. We call him doubting Thomas because he's... He's kind of that realist. He's the practical guy. He's that even-keeled, steady guy. And so when Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection, and he's like, boys, I'm back. And everybody starts getting all excited. Thomas is like, whoa, hold up. I know a couple things. I know that dead people stay dead. I know that Jesus died. So if you're going to sit here and tell me that you're Jesus and that you're alive, I'm going to need a little bit more evidence. And so Jesus shows him the wounds in his hands, and he takes Thomas's hand and places it in his side where the spear pierced him. And only then does Thomas believe. And we always give him a hard time about that. But I think it's that realistic, pragmatic thinking that's important. So where Peter says, bring it on, I got this. I feel like Thomas, I kind of see him looking at his hands and looking at this mission, mission just going, there's no way I've got this. I'm not enough. Lord, increase my, like we can't handle this. I feel like it's, it's Thomas and even Peter in this case. We see them at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has been teaching the 5,000. He's got them all sitting down. They've been learning all day. They're all excited. And the disciples come up and say, look, Jesus, we got to call it. We got to send these guys home because they're all hungry and there's nowhere to get food. There's not enough food to feed them. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you feed them. And I feel like they look at their hands and they just laugh. And they're like, yeah, if we had a year's salary, we couldn't feed these guys. Right? And besides, where would we even buy food? <laughs> we don't got this. We got to send them home. And so I feel like Thomas is probably in that crowd and it's that voice where he's looking at it and saying, there's no way we've got this. Increase our faith. 
What's interesting is while these seem like really like opposing views and ideas, I think that these two approaches are two sides of the same coin. And I think that what's interesting is both of these approaches put the onus on us, the focus on us. It's the I. I am responsible for the success of this mission. So on Peter's side where he's like, bring it on, I got this. He's looking at his hands, he sees strength. He sees, yeah, like I've done stuff like this before. Like, I'm awesome, let's do this, right? And so the success of that mission is dependent upon him. He's confident, he's prideful, and he thinks he's got it. But even in that desperation, when Thomas looks at his empty hands and sees, I'm not enough, I don't got this, there's a fear that comes with that that also says, I'm responsible for this mission. We look at it and say, God, you got to downsize this. Like, I don't know what you think you're asking, but we don't have the resources. We can't feed these guys. We can't do what you've called us to. We don't got this. So both put the focus on us. And to both, Jesus gives the same reply. In verse 6, he says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, the smallest seed that they could imagine, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this giant tree over here, uproot yourself and go plant yourself in the sea. It's impossible and it's absurd, right? This giant tree that's been there for how many years with this deep root system, and you're just going to say, uproot yourself. That's impossible. Plant yourself in the sea. That's absurd. And yet we serve the God who can do the impossible when we have just this little bit of faith and we're willing to be open to the mission that he has. And so Jesus says to his disciples, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed. Now we have to take a break here for just a second. And I have good news, well, for some of you. If your New Year's resolution was, I want to learn a little bit more about biblical Greek, this is good news. Uh, if it wasn't, don't worry. We're not going to get super bogged down here. But I need us to see that in Greek, there are two different ways that you can say this if you had faith. There's two different ifs. One of those statements is uh, like a contrary if statement. So it's that thing where clearly that's not the case. So I would say, if I were you. Obviously, we both know I'm not you, right? Or even more so, it's that kind of lacking. And so it's that idea of the student who comes to the teacher at the end of the semester. And they're like, oh, you know, what can I do to pass? And the teacher's like, well, if you had come to class, you know, if you had done any of the work, if you had taken the final, but you didn't, right? Kyle's laughing real hard. He's like, yeah, I got a bunch of those. But anyway, it's like, if you did, but you didn't. And in that case, if that's how Jesus is saying it, it's like he's saying, guys, if you just had faith the size of mustard seed, but you don't, so go get it. What's interesting is there's another way to say it. It's this if that isn't a, a question and contrary, it's a statement of fact. And so it's the way that Paul later will say, if Christ is Lord. Well, he's not saying like, I don't know if he's Lord. And he's certainly not saying if Christ is Lord, but he's not, right? He's saying if Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. And what is just astonishing to me is that the form that Jesus uses here is that one. So he's saying to the disciples, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, and you do. If you had faith, and you do. See, to both the Peters and the Thomases, Jesus is saying, look, your faith is small, but it's enough. Your faith is small, but it's enough. So if you look at the Peters, it's kind of like he's saying, hey, simmer down, guys. Peters are saying, like, I got this. Like, I'm in. I'm all in. Like, I'm going to join the gym now, and I'm going to just burn this place down. Like, I'm ready. 
And Jesus is saying, whoa, dude, calm your jets, right? Like, your faith is small. You don't realize it, but your faith is small. But it's enough. And to the Thomases, he's saying, look, you feel like you don't have it. You don't have it. But you've got this little bit of faith. Your faith is small, too. You see it, but what you don't see is that it's enough. See, we bring so little to God. But when we are open to allowing God to work through us, God will empower us to do what he has called us to do. When we bring our little, we find that by the grace of God, not by ourselves, but by the grace of God, it's enough. He remember those 5,000 that they were taking care of, and Jesus says, feed them, and they're like, we can't. There's one in the crowd who's innocent enough, naive enough. He still hasn't had his imagination beaten down by reality. And so he's foolish enough to look at the 5,000 and to look at Jesus, to look at his few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and to say, hey, will this help? I mean, that's crazy, right? He brings so little. But it turns out that when we bring our little to God, it's enough. So Philip is kind of saying the same thing. He's kind of saying this, his own version of increase our faith. So he's heard all this hard word, and some of the hard word that he's had is Jesus has been saying, look, I got to go away. And then when I go with him, and he says, you can't come with me. Where I'm going, you can't follow. Not right now. And he says, but, you know, eventually you'll be there with me. I'm going away to prepare this place for you, and you'll be there with me. And Thomas is the one who steps up, and he's like, hey, God, or Jesus, like, we don't know the way. We don't know the way, so how are we going to get there? And Jesus says, relax, Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's trying to tell them this isn't, I'm not talking to you about destination. I'm talking to you about relationship. You know me. You've been in the way. It's going to be okay. But they're so confused, and I don't blame them. On that side of the cross, things are real confusing. And so Philip is hearing all this confusing word too, but Philip's response is a little bit different. His isn't quite like, hey, you got to satisfy all of my thinking like Thomas. His is, look, Jesus, if you'll just show us a father. Like, I don't understand all this. Frankly, some of the stuff you're saying is really freaking us out. But we do know you. And at the end of the day, if you will just show us the father, that will be enough. And I think what's going on in Philip's head is he has, he has the memory of Moses in mind. So if you, if you know the story, even if you don't, Moses is given this audacious task, this huge mission to bring the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. And not just to bring them out of Egypt, but to take them through the wilderness and in the wilderness help to form and shape this stubborn, hard-headed people into a covenant people through whom God then can bless the rest of the world and to deliver them into the promised land. Those are some pretty big things he's got to accomplish. And not surprisingly, at one point it becomes overwhelming for him. He's come to the end, he looks at his empty hands, and he says, God, I can't do this. In fact, he even asked God just to kill him. I mean, it's that point. It's just like, I give up. can't do this. And so God says, look, I'll reveal myself to you in a new way. And so he shows Moses a glimpse of his glory, and it's transformative. It's empowering. Moses is open to the presence of God, and that presence of God changes who he is. It physically changes him. It says that his face shone so brightly, it freaked people out, they had to put a veil over his face. But Moses was empowered for the mission that God had given him to do because he was open to the presence of God and because God revealed himself 
in a new way. And so Philip has that memory in his, in his mind. And he's saying, look, Jesus, this is all pretty scary. But look, if you show us the Father, then it'll be enough. And Jesus has this gentle rebuke for Philip and says, Philip, how long have you been with me, man? And you still don't know me? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what Philip doesn't realize in part is that what he's saying is true. If they could just get a glimpse of the Father, it would be enough. But what they don't realize is they already have it. So Jesus is saying, if you had faith, and you do. Philip is saying, if we hadn't seen the Father, Jesus is saying, you have. See, when we realize that even in our littleness, when we're open to God, God is enough. Jesus is enough. He's enough in both of these cases. But going back to Luke chapter 17, after he does this bit about the mustard seed, Jesus launches into this really weird parable. It sounds like there's just like this non sequitur. It's like they were talking about mustard one second, and then all of a sudden he's like, hey, I want to tell you this parable that has nothing to do with anything. It seems really strange. And it's a really weird parable. Mark Nelson and I have been teaching a series on parables to the youth on uh, Sunday nights. And when we sat down to come up with that series and what parables we we're going to teach, we wanted it to be kind of like uh, parables that have impacted us or like our favorite parables and why they were important to us. And so we talked a lot about that. Interestingly enough, neither Mark nor I chose this parable because one, it's just weird. And then two, frankly, it's a little bit uncomfortable to hear coming from Jesus's mouth. It's an odd parable. He says, well, any one of you who has a servant, that's our first problem because the word servant there is real strong. It's actually slave. Bond servant. That's language we're not really comfortable with and shouldn't be, right? But it's hard hearing it come out of Jesus' mouth. But we have to remember Jesus isn't like affirming the system or something like that. Jesus is using a reality of their world that they knew and understood to help kind of put handles on this kingdom thing that they don't get. But he's still using intense language. He says, Well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. So the obvious answer is none of us would do that. That's what the disciples should say. They should say, none of us. You know, the servant has worked all day in the field, has done all this work, and then they come in, and who would you say, hey, have a seat at the table, good job, eat. And the answer should be none of them. And what we really want Jesus to be is to say, you're right, none of you would say that, but you should, right? You should invite him to the table. In fact, you should get up and serve him. That's not what Jesus says. But that's because that's not the point of this parable. Jesus does say that plenty other places. In fact, we just saw Jesus do that, where he lowered himself to the point of the servant and washed their feet. We have seen Jesus emptying himself out from the very beginning. The incarnation, when he takes all of his God power and privilege and right and authority, he sets that aside. He empties himself out, and he takes on flesh and bone. And not just any flesh and bone, flesh and bone of a baby. And he has lived his whole life serving and being the servant and following his master, the father. So we do see that in plenty of places, but in this parable, that's not what this is about. Jesus wants them to understand they wouldn't do that, nor would the servant even expect to sit down and eat because the servant's job is not done. So when we hear these parables of masters and servants, we usually in our minds get this like big mansion with the rich guys, and they have all these servants. So if you're thinking like Downton Abbey, well, you should because it's on the screen. But if you're thinking like Downton Abbey right now with the upstairs people and the downstairs people, a lot of the parables about master and slave, that's what they are. This one isn't. So even though that's the right image on the screen, it's the wrong image to have on your head. Instead, you should be thinking of a village farmer 
who's got one servant. And it's just him and the servant. And so that one servant has to do a little bit of everything. Well, a lot of bit of everything. But they do the work outside, and they also do a lot of the work inside, right? So even though the servant has done all of this hard work all day long, when they come in, you wouldn't say to that servant, hey, man, good job today. I know you've had a hard day. Have a seat. No, if you went to go sit down, you'd say, dude, what are you doing? You're not done yet. Get up. Dress like the slave that you are. Make me dinner. Finish your job. Then you can sit down and rest. Then you can eat and drink. Jesus even says, would you even thank the servant? Which, again, is a hard thing. We wouldn't be like, come on, Jesus, at least we should say thank you, right? Like, my three-year-old knows that, almost three. But this isn't a thank of like, hey, the servant came in and put a plate of food down and he said, thank you. This is a thank that implies uh, owing. Like the, the servant has done something so great that the master now owes the servant. He's merited something from the servant. He's bound to the servant now. Just like previously the servant was bound to the master. It's that kind of thank. And Jesus is saying, look, all the servant has done is what the servant is supposed to do. There's nothing that they've done that now makes it so that they are the master and the, and the master is now their servant. And we're reminded that there's nothing that we can ever do that could merit anything from God. There's nothing we could do, no matter how right we get it, how good we do, how extra mile we feel like it is, there is nothing we could possibly do that could ever merit anything from God and put God in this position where he owes me now. It's not like this thing that we've been investing in, and if we earn enough points, finally it's like, all right, God, now you've got to do what I want you to do, right? I've got all these big plans. I'm cashing in. That's not the way that this works. He's the master. We're the servant. And so in verse 10, Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, think about that. I don't know about you, but I, there aren't very many nights when I lay down in bed and go, man, I've done all I was commanded today. Like, I did everything to be the person that Christ wanted me to be today. I got it all right. And Jesus is saying like, but hey, if you do, even then you realize, you know, we're still unworthy servants. All we've done was our duty. That's just the bare minimum that the servant is called to do. And we shouldn't be too surprised by that word because Jesus has lived this example daily. We talked about how he emptied himself at the incarnation, but he's been living this way his entire life. You know, the cross is this huge moment, this monumental thing where we see Jesus laying his life down in love. But the cross doesn't come out of left field. Jesus has been living that day in and day out, that same self-sacrificing, always other-serving love. He's the one who at the end of the day, day in and day out, he has done all that he was commanded. He's the perfect servant. And he's that example for us. But we also have to remember that when we are open to God, God does empower us. But he empowers us for his mission, not our own. See, too often we're kind of a little bit Peter-esque. And we want to take God along to kind of bless our plans. And so we do want that power. We're like, God, empower us. Like, yeah, I kind of want to throw that mulberry tree in the sea, right? Because, I mean, think about it. I'd be in all the papers. I don't know if they're papers anymore, but YouTube, whatever. I'd be famous. Like, let's, let's do something big. And let me be a big part of that. 
right? But the problem is we invert that relationship, or we want to, between master and servant. And we have to remember that God does empower us, but it's when we're open. And part of being open is surrendering our own will and recognizing, hey, you know, I want you to empower my happiness, but maybe that's not what this is about. I want you to empower my comfort, but maybe that's not what this is about. And so I have all these things and all these plans for 2020 or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, if we want to be open to the empowerment of God, we have to be open to his mission. Jesus says, where I am, my servant will be also. And too often we flip that right away in our heads and just think that wherever I go, Jesus is coming along and blessing the whole journey, right? So I can go wherever I want to do, go and do whatever I want to do, and then Jesus kind of just has to tag along and fix the things I mess up and make better everything, right? But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, where I am, my servant is. And if we truly want to be servants, we have to be where he is. And we have to be on his mission. That's part of what this whole greater works thing is about. Going back to verse 12 of chapter 14 in John. When he says, look, you're going to do all these things, and you're going to do even greater works than these. I think the Peter part of me goes, all right, water under bourbon, right? Feeding 10,000 with a pack of crackers. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that he is going to do these things. He even says it right there, because I am going to the Father. He is going to do these things, but he's going to do greater things through us. And the reason is because in the incarnation, it's kind of weird to think about, but in the incarnation, Jesus is limited. I mean, think about all the people he touched, all the people he spoke to, all the people he healed. Think about, I mean, it's a huge number. But think about on a global scale. Think about through time. It's a drop in the bucket. And Jesus is saying, look, I know I'm about to die, but I also know I'm about to go to the Father. And in the resurrection, Jesus takes the incarnate body and, and it's transformed into this new body of Christ called the church. And when we, the church, are open to being the body of Christ, Christ works in and through us and does even greater things. His impact, his influence, his power is so much greater. Not because it's us. He doesn't say, look, I'm going away or you're going to be even greater than I am. He's saying, I'm going to the Father, and so you're going to be able to see even greater things that I'm going to do. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And then again, he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It's still Jesus. It's Jesus empowering us for the mission. And so we must always remember that God is the master, and we are the servants. And that word serves both as a rebuke and also an encouragement. There are times when we need to be rebuked a little bit, when we've gotten a little bit too Peter-esque, and we're like, oh, God, I've got all these great plans to, to make you know, your name, but also my name, like a lot bigger. Like, I've got all these great plans, and we want to take God along in that. Or we want to go where we think God should want to go, right? And in that, he's saying, look, this is a little bit of rebuke. You are not the master. If you want to be on the way, you've got to get in the way, and the way is recognizing that you're the servant. But it's also encouragement. It's encouragement so that when we're like Thomas and we're like, oh man, I don't got this. It's like Jesus is saying, that's cool because you're not the master. This mission doesn't depend on you. We are not the master and we don't need to be. It's encouraging, right? So what we need to do is to be open to doing what God wants to do through us. We bring the little bit that we have 
And then God does the rest. All the success part of it, all the making it work part of it, that's totally up to him. That's all up to God. We are not the master. And we don't have to be. There's this old story about this famous pianist um, named Paderewski. I don't know if that's how you say it. He was Polish. If you either know Polish or you're some like piano geek, you can come correct me afterwards. But there was this famous Polish pianist named Paderewski. Ooh, said that five times fast. And he was a master, and he was amazing, and everybody knew it, and he announced that he was retiring. And so he was going on like a farewell tour one more time. And everyone knew that this was the very last time you would ever get to hear the master play. So people were excited about it. They're gobbling up tickets. And one woman got a ticket for her and for her young son. Because her young son had just started playing piano, and he was already discouraged. He didn't want to put in the hard work. Didn't seem like it was going anywhere. And she felt like, if I can just get him in that room, if he can just see what the master can do with those same keys, he will be inspired. He'll be encouraged. He'll be lifted up. Maybe he'll be in the next Paderewski, right? So she goes, and she works hard, gets the money, gets the tickets, takes the journey, and takes him to the concert. And they listen to the first half of the concert and all these beautiful movements and watching up there with his beautiful piano doing what only he could do. And everybody is so moved. And at intermission, everybody's just talking about how this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They can't believe they're here. I mean, people are crying. It's just amazing. But pretty soon, all of that chit-chat and excitement, it starts to turn to these kind of hushed but tense whispers. It's more of a murmuring. Something's changed. The woman notices a change, and she looks around to see what's going on. And to her horror, she realizes her son is missing. But it gets even worse, because she quickly finds him walking up the stairs the platform, that stage, and sitting down at that beautiful black grand piano. Everybody is flabbergasted. They just can't believe it. They're saying things like, who would let their child do this? Where is his mother? What, what does he think he's doing? Who raises a kid like this? I can't believe They're going nuts. And it gets even worse because he starts to play. I don't know where he started to play. I feel like it was chopsticks. It's like, doo-doo-doo-doo. I also don't know if that's chopsticks because I don't know music. I know when I learned trumpet, uh, the first thing I think I learned was chopsticks, and clearly I forgot. But anyway, so he sits down, and he's tinkering out his attempt at this little beginning tune that he's not even very good at. So the same instrument that sounded so beautiful only moments ago is filling the hall with this racket, and it's just being desecrated, and everybody is just in an uproar. Their faces are turning red, and then everybody goes silent. Because at that moment, they see Paderewski coming in from the other side of the stage, and they know this boy's going to get it. And not just this boy, but his mom, too. Because see, Paderewski had this, this horrible reputation of being very particular, uh, kind of grumpy, um, what many of your teens would describe as old. Um, plus, look at him. He's kind of scary, right? So everybody knew this boy is going to get it, not just but this boy, but his mom, too. They're going to be humiliated and publicly thrown out of this place, or maybe even worse. I don't know what worse you can do as a pianist. But anyway, it's going to be worse. And so they know the boy's going to get it. But Paderewski, he walks across that stage. The boy keeps playing, oblivious to what's going on. He sits down on the bench next to him, next to the little boy. And he begins to fill in the highs and the lows. And together they begin to improvise this piece that fills that hall with something new and something beautiful. And the whole time that Paderewski's playing, he's whispering to the young boy next to him, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. See, we are not the master, and we don't have to be. 
We bring so little. But when we bring it with the openness to God, he empowers us for so much more. I don't know what 2020 holds for you. I don't know what God is calling you to this year. I don't even know what God is calling me to. I don't know what God is calling New City to. I know that we as a church staff and elders, we've been praying about that and praying about that. And we feel like God is calling this community some pretty big things. We think God's going to do some awesome stuff in and through this community. And then at the end of 2020, things are going to look a lot different than they did at the beginning. But I'll be honest with you, my fear for both myself, for you, for the church, my fear is that if we're not careful, we can be closed off to God's power and God's work in our lives. I think there are two ways that that can happen. I think that one way is, is being like two Peter, right? And just closing ourselves off because we look at what God has planned and we're like, hey, that's great, but I've got a better plan, right? Like, I'm so excited. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do everything different this year. Like, this is the year that I change the world. I mean, you change the world, but I change the world, right? And so we're gonna join that gym in January, but by February, we fizzled out. And then by the end of 2020, we would look at it and we're like, God, where were you? We had all these big plans. How come you didn't do anything? How come you didn't show up? And I think the other way that we can be closed off is we can be a little too Thomas. And we can begin to hear some of the things that God is calling us to as individuals and as a community. And we can look at that and go, God, I don't got this. There's no way. Like, that is, that's too big. Can you give me like plan B or C? Because that's too much. And so we're going to be closed off to it and we're going to get the end of 2020 and we're going to look around and go, God, where were you? How come my life isn't any different? How come my marriage isn't any different? How come my family's not any different? How come my work's not any different? How come my church isn't any different? How come the city isn't any different? That's my fear. And it's my fear for myself too. My hope and my prayer today is that we would be open. That we would be open to bring the little that we have to the master. That we would be open to whatever the big thing is he has for us or the big things he has for us. That we would hear that call to do the work of the servant day in and day out. And that we would be open to God's empowering so that we could be on his mission. And then I can only begin to imagine what the end of 2020 looks like. When we look back and we're like, God, look at all that you did. I had seen you do these great things, but this is so much greater. That's my hope and that's my prayer. And I think if we remain open to God this year, we'll hear his voice as he whispers to us, keep praying, keep serving, keep loving, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. In just a moment, the band's going to come back up and continue to lead us in worship. As I do, I want to invite you to these common tables, two in front and two in back. And as you come to these common tables, you'll find common elements, common bread, gluten-free, but still common common juice. And as you do, I hope that you will be reminded, I hope that I will be reminded that we are common people. And we come to this common table with common elements as common people, but I also hope that you will realize that God does something with those common elements to make them a means of grace by which he transforms a common people into the uncommon body of Christ, who he then empowers to go and do his uncommon work in the world. So come to the tables, come with the little faith that you have, come with open hands to receive so much more than you give. Let's pray.
Lord God, I pray that the word that we would hear from you today wouldn't just be this word of, oh, if we only believed more, if we only believed harder, you could do so much more through us. I also hope, God, that we won't just hear that, that this is just too hard, that none of us can do it. But instead, Lord, may we hear a word of grace and assurance that you are able to take even the smallest amount of faith that we can muster, and you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. May we find peace today in your grace. May we lean into who you are and who you've called us to be. May we take it into ourselves, Lord. May we be formed by it and shaped by it, and may it be your spirit flowing through us so that ultimately it is your work in us. And so invite us to trust. Help us to be open, Lord. And in our openness, empower us to do all that you've called us to do and to be all that you have made us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.